Verse 44, Then he said to them, These are my words that I have spoke to you while I was still with you, and that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So a little pre-Holy Spirit revelation there. And he said to them, Thus it stands written that the Christ would suffer and would rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending you what my father promised, but stay in the city until you have clothed with power from on high. So he says, I'm going to send you out just like I did those couple of times that I did. But now you're going out not just representing me as a miracle worker prophet. You're going out representing me as this God man who redeems the world through his death and resurrection. But I want you to stay in Jerusalem before you go to the ends of the earth until the Holy Spirit comes. Now that will be clearly laid out in Acts when you get there. When Jesus led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And now during the blessing, he departed and was taken into heaven so that they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the courts blessing God. So Jesus sends into heaven and he's taken away from them. And this is the first book in the Bible that does not end on a negative note. Remember, every book in the First Testament has ended on some kind of negative note. Even though there have been little glimmers of hope, they've all ended on negative notes because for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And those were all the stories of men. Now, yes, his primary character in all the First Testament books is God. And God is the hero. But he's working through humans and the historical lives of humans. And humans tend to corrupt everything or not have faith and commitment to the things of God. And therefore, each book ends on a negative note because ultimately creation is in the hands of humans who corrupt everything or just fail at doing the will of God. But now this is in the hands of the God-man, the Son of God, who is perfect without sin. And the book ends on a positive note because it ends with his resurrection, it ends with his ascension going to the throne of God in heaven, and it ends with this hope that he, they will, for in about ten days, get the Holy Spirit and begin to do the work of the kingdom of God on earth. And though we're still human, and we're going to still mess up, and the book of Acts will have lots of those same themes come back into things, it won't quite be the same absolute failures and sin rebellion. In fact, it won't be rebellion at all because they will be in the Holy Spirit. And so they'll still be flawed, they'll still be imperfect, and they'll still mess up. But there you won't see rebellion in the book of Acts like you saw rebellion in every single book of the First Testament because they now have the Spirit of God made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this ends on an incredibly positive note an incredibly positive note the resurrection of Christ and then he gives them the commission to go out in Matthew's gospel chapter 28 it tells us to go out and make disciples of all nations baptizing them meaning pledging your absolute total allegiance to the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit 
And remember, you can only pledge your allegiance to one thing only. It's not possible to give your allegiance to multiple things because allegiance is absolute total obedience. And no two things are going to agree with each other on everything. And so you cannot give your absolute total allegiance to more than one thing. You will divide them, and then you will learn to love one and hate the other eventually. But the fact that Christ is saying give your absolute total allegiance to God the Father and the Holy Spirit, and the, or the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is making it very clear that he sees them as the same. The same. In unity, three consciousness that are one consciousness. And then he says, I will give you the power, which we know will be the Holy Spirit, to be my disciples, and to go out and make disciples of other people. Not get people saved, but to make them disciples. And unfortunately, the Christian church for a very long time is just get them saved. Bring them in, up to the altar, say, I do, stamp, stamp, you're in, you're good, welcome to the church, and move on to the next thing. And so there's this really famous guy, I forget his name, and I apologize, but he says, in our process of being obsessed with saving the souls of people only, we have failed to save their minds, redeem them, transform them, disciple them, teach them how to think. And as a result, today in America, we have lost both their souls and their minds. And this is why a lot of people are walking away from the faith, and they are not coming back. They used to walk away, and then when they had kids, they came back after the college years. But they're not coming back. Because the church has just become, wow, that's a whole other thing. But not every church, and not every believer, but America as a whole. And Christ made it very clear that you were to go out and make disciples. That means faithfully living a life of character in your own life to the point that you can influence other people to say, wow, there's something different about you, and I know who you belong to by the way that you love each other. Then you're able to share the gospel and get them saved. But then you stay in their life, and you disciple them and train them and help them listen to the Holy Spirit, submit to the Holy Spirit, and understand the word of God so that they can be transformed, so that they can build the kingdom of God, and you all become partners. And it's the whole process that disciple, go out and make disciples is the whole process, not just one point on the assembly line. We're called to do all of it, and only assembly line for a lack of a better illustration. We began with Daniel 7, of who Jesus is as the God-man. And we're going to end with Daniel 7, that Jesus is the God-man. Remember Daniel 7 said, Behold, I saw one like the Son of Man, human, who is approaching the throne of God without sin, because there is the only way you can get in the presence of God without dying, is if you have the blood of Christ, which hasn't happened yet in Daniel 7, or you're surrounded by angels protecting you, but there are no angels there in that one. Approaching the throne of God on the clouds, which only divine beings ride clouds, so he's human, sinless, and divine. And Yahweh gave him all authority, all power, all sovereignty, and a kingdom that never ends, which only describes God, Yahweh. So Daniel 7 says this guy pops up into heaven, and he's human, sinless, divine, and he is Yahweh, and he's giving Yahweh's rule and Yahweh's kingdom. Okay, this clearly points to the Messiah being a God-man. But the question is, when does this happen? Because if Christ has always been God, then when did he not have all power and all sovereignty and all honor and the kingdom of God 
in order to get it back. If he's getting it for the first time, then that doesn't that means he's not he hasn't always been God. And if he's has always been God, that means he had to not have that for a time period in order to get it back. So this is either his first getting, which means he hasn't always been all-powerful and sovereign over everything, or this is his second one, which means he's doesn't he lost it or gave it up. And when did that happen? Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. After God spoke long ago in various portions and various ways to our ancestors through the prophets, in these last days he has spoken to us in a son, whom he appointed heir over all things. Well, he should already be God, so why is he being appointed heir? Whom he created the world, the son is the radiance of his glory, the representation of his essence, or the exact copy. So God, the other of Hebrews make it very clear that the son is the heir of the throne. He is the exact nature of God himself. He is the glory of God and the representation of his essence. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. So when he had accomplished cleansings for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Thus he became so far better than the angels as he inherited a name superior to theirs. So he makes the point that Jesus is not just another angel. That he is far superior to all the other heavenly divine beings that are in heaven in Daniel chapter 7 because he is the son of God. He is the exact nature of God. He is the glory of God. He sits on the throne of God. He has been given everything and has everything. Therefore, he's greater than the angels. Then later in chapter 2, coming back talking about how Jesus is superior to the angels and making all these points of how he's superior to the angels, he says this, chapter 2, verse 5, For he did not put the world to come about which he, we are speaking under the control of angels. Instead, someone testified somewhere, and then quoting scripture, What is man that you think of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels for a little while, and then crowned him with glory and honor, and you put all things under his control. For when he put all things under his control, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see all things under his control, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while. So God temporarily made Jesus a little lower in authority and sovereignty and power, lower than the angels for a little while. And this is why Jesus can say, no one knows when I come back again, not even me, the son of man. And I only know and can only do what the father tells me because he has temporarily been made a little bit lower. So go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Paul is telling us that we should be like Christ in our character and our nature as we live out our lives on this earth. So chapter 2, verse 5, he says, You should have the same attitude towards one another that Christ Jesus had, who though he existed in the form of God or the essence of God or the nature of God, he is God. He did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. While your Bible is saying it's something to be grasped, as if like it's saying like, oh, he doesn't think that he can actually grasp Godhood. Well, that doesn't make sense because it just said that he is the exact nature and essence of God. So how could he not grasp Godhood if he is God? The Greek says, did not see it as something to be exploited. 
which means though he is God in his very essence, he did not use that authority or power to exploit people and to dominate them and oppress them like every other person in all of human history who has power does. Instead, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of his death, even death on the cross. So he tells us that when did Jesus not have all sovereignty, power, and authority, and glory, and that he was then made a little lower than the angels? It was in his incarnation. In his incarnation, he gave up the right to exercise all the power of God all the time. And I've used this analogy before when we went through Hebrews, but it's like if you saw me wrestling my girls, my girls often out-wrestle me and they dominate me and they overpower me. And, and nobody watching this happen would think, oh my gosh, that's pathetic. That grown man is being beaten up by a four and seven-year-old. Okay, No one would say that. Everybody knows that good fathers... We, they limit their power and choose not to exercise it when they are wrestling their kids. I often limit my power and choose not to exercise it when we play Chinese checkers or Othella or something like that. Now, oftentimes I do so they can see what they're up against, and other times I back off and help them learn how to play and how to stretch their own muscles. If they're being crushed every time, they can't grow. So I, 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 it's not that I don't have the power to defeat them. I choose not to use the power out of my love and humbleness towards them. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus, being God, chose to limit his power and chose not to exercise his all-knowingness and his omnipresence and his all-powerfulness as a human so that he could learn what it's like to be a human, so that he could suffer so that he can endure painship and hardship, so that Hebrews 4 will tell us, so that he can relate to us and give us compassion. And so he chose that in his incarnation. That's when he became a little lower than the angels and gave up his right to exercise his power, so that ultimately he could actually die and suffer ultimately for us. As a result of this incredible humility, when humans are given power, we use it all the time. Now, sometimes we restrain ourselves in our compassion, but not all the time, perfectly all the time, do we restrain ourselves. One being in all of human history had all power and did not use it. He went to the cross. And because he demonstrated obedience and humility and self-sacrifice and love in a way that no other human ever has, God gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven on earth and under earth. Peter tells us that God vindicated him and put him on the right hand of God on the throne. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that as a result of that, in Jesus' ascension, God gave everything back to him. He gave him the name that is above all their name. He gave him all the glory and all the honor and all the sovereignty of Yahweh and gave him a kingdom that is never ending and that everyone will bow down and confess that he is God. And so what is Daniel 7 then showing you? Daniel 7 is showing you minutes after the ascension of Jesus Christ. Daniel is not seeing the coming of the God-man Messiah at the beginning of his ministry on earth. 
He's seeing the God-man, Messiah, at the end of his ministry on earth. Daniel is seeing. So the chronological order is Jesus comes and he is God on the throne. And he comes and empties himself of all that power, not literally, but metaphorically. He gives up the right to exercise and becomes a little baby. He grows up and learns obedience, learns what it's like to suffer and to need people and depend on people and to cry out to God and help. And then he does his ministry. He dies on the cross. He raises himself from the grave. He appears to people for 40 days. And then he ascends into heaven. And the minute he goes up in the clouds and disappears from the disciples' view, he pops into Daniel's view. And he comes into heaven and he begins to approach the throne. And at that moment, God says, well done, good and faithful son, and whom I'm well pleased. And he gives him all sovereignty, all glory, and all honor back and lifts him up over the angels once again to his rightful place that he had before and now proves that he can have again and is given the kingdom that never ends. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Christ has the right to be worshipped and declared God because he is God, has always been God, and created the world through his word. And he has the right to be called God and worship God because he proved his worthiness by giving everything up and obeying God and dying on the cross and being raised from the grave. And so he is worthy of Godhood before the first coming and after the resurrection of his first coming. And this is the point that Daniel 7, Philippians chapter 2, and Hebrews chapter 1 are all making about Christ giving all authority back again. This is Jesus the Messiah. And this is the God-man who came to do not only what the world could not even comprehend and needed to be done, but did what the world, no one in the world could ever do and never has done. And this is what puts the kingdom of God above and greater than any earthly kingdom on earth. And this is why we pledge our allegiance to Christ our King and no other government and no other authority on the earth. Because All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, except for the God-man. This is how he proves himself worthy, by creating the world, sustaining the world, and dying for the world, and being raised from the grave, and conquering sin, death, the grave, and the devil for the world. This is why we bow down and worship him. And then he goes even further, and he enters into a relationship with us. And he indwells us and lives with us and loves us and gives us compassion. And then First Peter tells us that the same power that is in Christ to resist the sin, the devil, and the grave in the flesh and raise him from the grave is the power that is in us. And we have access to that if we submit to him. We don't have access to it because we got a Harry Potter magic wand and was in the right place at the right time. And we can wave it however we want with the right incantation. We have it only when we say, not my will be done, but thy will be done. God help me. You need to do this because I can't. That's when we have access to the fullness of Christ. So in conclusion, Luke clearly portrays Jesus as the God-man, who is the total fulfillment of the prophecies of the long-awaited Messianic king. Over the last several hundred years, the Jews have been shaped by their oppression under foreign rule and saw the Messiah narrowly as conquering king. They saw the Messiah narrowly 
as a conquering king who would destroy the governments of all the nations and establish the kingdom of Yahweh on earth and usher Yahweh's covenant people into eternal peace. Though this is what the prophets foretold, there was more to what the Messiah would be and do. The oppression of the Jews at the hands of foreign powers also caused them to see the kingdom of Yahweh as exclusive to the Jews, and they begin to see themselves as superior to the Gentiles, while those who were crippled or sick they saw as being under the judgment of Yahweh and thus were excluded. Jesus emphasized two main things that the prophets foretold that the Jews missed. First, he emphasized the fact that he came to suffer and die and not conquer Rome. He understood that the far greater enemy of humanity was sin, humanity's true oppressor and the reason for Rome's corruption. Jesus would have to conquer the power of the sin, devil, and death in order to free humans spiritually to follow Yahweh before he could conquer the evil nations that were part of and establish the kingdom of Yahweh on earth. This concept is what both the disciples and the religious leaders struggle to comprehend. Second, Jesus emphasized that he did not come just for the righteous, Jews, but for all people, regardless of nationality, ethnicity, gender, social status, and physical health. The true covenant people of the kingdom of Yahweh were known by their love for all people, including their enemies. Their empathy and compassion are what will truly win people for Jesus and change the world, not fighting for one's rights and bringing those they see, bringing down those they see as unworthy. This is the type of kingdom that Jesus came to build through his love and death for the world. His people had lifted their rights and power above all others and saw him as so unworthy of the kingdom of Yahweh that they killed him, falsely viewing him as their enemy and a threat. Yet it is, was their killing of him that brought the redemption of the kingdom of Yahweh on earth. This is how he conquered his enemies, by loving them sacrificially to the point of death and then brings them to life. This is what we must not make the same mistake in. We cannot, as the church, make the same mistake of putting God in a box and limiting him to being only this based on our church traditions or what feels true to us in our lives. We must always be going to Scripture and praying that the Holy Spirit gives us the eyes to see the true fulfillment of Scripture and the way that Jesus connected the dots. We now have the Holy Spirit and Christ and the Father living in us, which means we have the capability as a church to go to the Word of God and make the connections that Christ made because He is in us. And just like He opened their eyes to see the connection of Scripture when He appeared to them, He can do the same for us. We must not limit Him to our cultural, our personal, our ethnic, our power-based interpretation of who he is. And second, we must not have an elitism where we think that we're saved and they're not, or, oh my gosh, look at those sinners, or I can't believe that they just did this, or the world is evil and bad, let's bring them down, or circle our wagons against them. We must have the same sacrifice, compassion, to the point of hurting and suffering for the world, regardless of how weird, threatening, crazy, infuriating, flawed, pathetic, dorky, whatever word you want to use that they might be. And the only way we can go to those people without our own prejudice is if we surrender ourselves to the Spirit of God 
who loves in a way that we're not capable of. These are the failures of the Jewish people. We cannot let this be the failure of the church because we're supposed to be different and we have so much more. And we will all make mistakes and fail at different times, but hopefully not so corporately and so universally like the Jews did. Not because we're better, but because we are on this side of the resurrection and we have more access to God. That is the gospel of Luke. Yahweh, I thank you and praise you and glorify you and honor you for the amazing God that you are. All throughout the First Testament, you clearly revealed yourself as the all-powerful God who is capable of anything, conquering the storm and death and the grave, even conquering the storm and the grave and death. And that you are also an all-loving God who loves us so much despite humanity's constant, blatant, gross rebellion and sin and against you and others and, and massively harming humanity over and over throughout the generations. You pursue us and never give up. And there's nothing that we can do or have done that causes you to stop loving us or pursuing us. And that you are constantly entering in our lives, loving us and revealing yourself to us and bringing us back and forgiving us and guiding us. And that you ultimately demonstrate this through your son. Because there is no greater love than someone who lays down their life for another, especially when you allow your son to die for us. And that that same power was also demonstrated in his resurrection. And I thank you that you are a God that is consistently sovereign and loving all throughout human history and even into the point of your son, that Jesus then demonstrates those same qualities as the God-man. It's absolutely sovereign, absolutely powerful, absolutely loving, absolutely caring in our own lives. And I just thank you for everything that he accomplished on the cross as the God-man. And everything that he accomplished in his resurrection to give us a new life as the God-man. And I pray and I thank you for the Holy Spirit that he made available to us through the death and resurrection. And I pray that we would be able to be the church, the people of God that you've called us to and made possible for us to be through his death and resurrection and dwelling. And I pray that you change our hearts and transform our minds and guide our lives closer and closer to Christ, deeper in love and obedience to him so that we can better love all people that come into our lives, all neighbors, regardless of who they are, and to truly give our lives to expanding the kingdom of God, finally made possible, and finally we are made able and possible and willing to do this through the Holy Spirit. And I just thank you for this great gift that goes deeper than even anything we can imagine. In Jesus' name, amen.